0: We need God. If we factor him out of the question, we strip ourselves bare before the blast of life's cruel things that go on. But if we factor God in as our hope, we can face anything. God has made commitments to us, right? Psalm thirty-two eight, I will counsel you with the my eye upon you. I, I will come against again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. John fourteen three, my grace is sufficient for you. Second Corinthians twelve nine. Fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. It's over in Genesis fifteen. What makes us into people that can beat the world? is a sense of God's love for us a sense of the of the heart of his promise powered on our behalf and the awakening of our heart is what empowers us to face life not with resignation but with a, just expecting what God will do in our lives every single day uh, Jonathan Edwards everyone explained how the human Being makes contact with reality. He said it was on two levels. We grasp things, conceptual knowledge in our head. We also enter into things with the sense of the heart. It's the difference between reading a recipe, for example, of an apple pie, and then actually putting that piece of hot apple pie into your mouth. God has made us to know him on both levels, with the thoughts of our minds, the sense of our hearts. And it's the sense of the heart that gives us that traction for our life. When, he, uh, when his assurances in the gospel melt into our hearts, we experience the power of hope. Now, we've been in Isaiah now for a few months. In Isaiah chapter 31 and 32 that we're looking at today that Daniel read earlier with verses 1 through 9, Isaiah ministered in a day when his people needed the courage of hope just like today, but they only had a theoretical knowledge of God if for them to get through the threat of the Assyrian evasion in front of them. Their beliefs hadn't penetrated their hearts. So in a practical struggle, their beliefs kept losing the argument and the tyranny of the urgent was driving them. And Isaiah understood their need and our need. He guides us into the spiritual insight that's so important that makes a difference in the heart. And first, As it said in verse 1 there, he looks at the foolishness of human wisdom. And what was going on is from a human standpoint, Hezekiah's decision to send a delegation down to Egypt to help against the Assyrians appeared to be wise. Egypt and Assyria were the superpowers of that time. And, And the horses and the chariots made Egypt and Assyria the superpowers of their day. Judah didn't have the size or the wealth to equip its army like that. Ironically, Judah's location in the hills, mountains really nullified the threat of the invasion mounted on horses and riding chariots. But anyway, the battle between Egypt and Assyria would be fought elsewhere, but if Egypt lost, Hezekiah Hezekiah, sorry about that, feared an attack against Jerusalem by Assyrian infantry, in fear of that attack he brought that alliance with Egypt, and like we've said multiple times in what was even warned with Moses uh, early on was what? You had, Why are you fleeing back to Egypt? Why are you going back from where God had rescued you? But to them, it seemed and looked wise and uh, it was a chess game and they thought, you know, we're going to put all of our pieces with Egypt. And Hezekiah did not, as it says there in verse 1, look to the Holy One, did not seek the Lord. Instead, he put his trust in the Egyptians. And really, each of us can identify with this because so many times when we submit to our fears, we refuse, obviously, then to trust God, and we basically, in, in reality, avoid His counsel as on purpose as possible. And Isaiah is like, hey guys, you got to understand the superiority of divine wisdom is so much better. It says there if as we saw, yet he, and that's capitalized, so it's referring to God, God Almighty, he also is wise. And as we mentioned last week, always before in scripture, wisdom was just identified as a human virtue given by God and Isaiah, in this way, to speak of the wisdom of God in comparison was unusual. The distinction between wisdom of God, wisdom of man, offered by Isaiah, quickly dispels the notion that the two can be compared. God's wisdom is supreme because it's beyond or above the range of normal, physical, human experience. And we see three characteristics distinguishing that wisdom there. First, he will bring disaster. Some other translations read, He will bring evil. Only the wisdom of God can sort out the difference here between evil and disaster. As, as the Holy One, God cannot be the source of moral evil in the universe because He is holy and pure, but He can utilize forces of nature, events of history to exercise judgment, punish sin. His wisdom, then, is the ability to discriminate between moral evil and natural disaster as instruments of his will. Human wisdom is always going to fail the test in that. Uh, Whenever we humans take judgment into our own hands, we will run the risk of our own sin motivating the punishment. And that is why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay that. And that's in Romans 12. Only the wisdom of God can bring disaster without evil intent. So he says that one, first of all. Second, Isaiah characterizes the wisdom of God by the assurance that he will not retract his words. In verse 2 there. Human wisdom requires revision, right? I mean, I'm, I'm always like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was wrong. I, I shouldn't have said that. And humility is the mark of a wise man or woman. But God's wisdom, however, doesn't need revision. His truth stands firm forever. When he speaks, he will not retract his words because he doesn't need to. And while we don't worship his words, we know that what he says will stand to the end with that promise. These words are faithful and true in Revelation 22. You know, it goes on to say there, if anyone adds to these things, if anyone takes away from these words, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. So we see that will not retract his words. Second, third, God's wisdom is distinguished from human wisdom by his even handedness in Uh, rising against the house of evildoers, and also against the help of the workers of iniquity. Uh, Both Judah and Egypt were going to feel the wrath of God. Judah Judah would be punished because of Hezekiah's sin of seeking Egypt's help. Egypt's going to be punished for giving the help. And at the same time, the punishment of both will fit the sin. And that discretionary judgment is a virtue of the wisdom of God that is always going to be lacking in human wisdom. We do not have that perspective of history, past, present, and future against the backdrop of eternity. We can never be fully fair in exercising judgment. doesn't mean that we aren't used by God to exercise judgment and have the authority given by God to exercise judgment, but there's going to be bias. The bias of limited perspective, uh, human motivation, will It's going to creep into the punishment. God and God alone can exercise wrath against his people and their enemies with the wisdom of his eternal purpose. And Isaiah goes on to tell us why human wisdom is faulty. Verse 3, Egyptians are men and not God. There we go. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. And the words there really are hidden some interesting types of questions. Are you going to trust in the living God or a dying man? Are you going to trust in the strength of horses or in the power of the Spirit of God? With just a stretch of God's hand in human events, both men and horses, those who help and those who are helped, will perish together, as it says there at the last part of verse 3. And Isaiah goes on then to talk more about the mystery of God's wisdom in verses 4 through 9. His ways, even the wisest of humans, can't understand. And he gives two proofs in the context of the judgment coming on Judah and Assyria. One is the mystery of God being a tenacious lion, as we read there, and a hovering mother bird at the same time. So God's going to permit Assyria to come to the gates of Jerusalem, and then he's going to take on the role of a roaring young lion ready to devour a lamb. Nothing the Assyrians can do will turn him from his purpose. With the tenacity of a young lion, God's going to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. So instantly, this image of God then changes from this lion to a hovering bird. Strength gives way to compassion as God shows his love for the children of Israel. Like a mother bird, he will defend Jerusalem against the Assyrians Deliver the city from their hands, preserve his people by passing over them with death strikes to the enemies. Uh, It's memories of the Passover in Egypt. As in Egypt, when the angel of death passed over the Israelites who had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, God reinforces promise of their uh, being preserved in this unforgettable picture of a hovering mother bird. And with this promise in their minds, Isaiah. Pleads with the children of Israel to return to the Father who they had revolted against and thrown away and just throw away the silver, gold idols that they had made as a symbol of their life without Him. And that second proof then of the mystery of God's wisdom is the promise that Assyria is going to fall by a sword, that it's not a human weapon in verses 8 and 9. God calls in the supernatural. And to this day, History does not tell us why the Assyrians withdrew their siege against Jerusalem and retreated in disarray. Uh, History doesn't do it, but God's word does. Chapter 37, then the angels of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. Well, and then, duh, the king of Assyria departed and went away, returned home, remained in Nineveh. So behind The mystery of his will is the assurance of his wisdom. Jerusalem, the city where his fire burns, is special to his purpose, as it says there, but it's not exempt from his wrath. Human wisdom cannot fathom that mystery completely, no matter how hard we try. And then what we see here in chapter from 31 to 32 that Zach read for us, is this reign of wisdom that looks very different, right? The king reigns in righteousness in verse 1. So in comparison with the nation in rebellion against the love of God, the will of God, the kingdom of righteousness is governed by wisdom, empowered by the Spirit, characterized by peace. In Isaiah, he establishes a principle of truth that applies to every nation. So here it is. The leader sets the tone for the quality of governance, period. The leader sets the tone for the quality of governance. As the character of a business, for example, is set by the character of the leader, so the character, the quality of a kingdom is set by the character of the king. And, and not by accident, Isaiah notes that a righteous king needs or righteous kingdom, sorry, needs a righteous king. So character then becomes this major qualification for leadership. And we've seen that, haven't we, right? In his earlier discussions of the leaders of Judah, Jerusalem, Isaiah noted the character just was awful, didn't count. Drunkenness, lies, trickery were standard operations. And as a consequence, rebellion replaced righteousness. Oppression replaced Justice at every level of government. In Proverbs 14, 34, Righteousness excel, exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So the king reigns in righteousness. The leader sets the tone. The leader needs to be a righteous king. And the princes then, those under him, will rule with justice. Another important principle there is established. Righteousness precedes justice in the equation of good governance. And this is very important, everyone. It is false to assume that a leader can do justice without being righteous. Sooner or later, there will be moral decisions that test the caliber of the leader's soul, expose the flaw, and conversely, if the leader is right with God, That leader is going to respect the God-given rights of others. Another principle of wisdom is established for us. Righteousness not only precedes justice, but righteousness guarantees justice. The king who reigns in righteousness then has princes who rule in justice. In the clearest terms, Isaiah is laying the stone of justice upon the cornerstone of righteousness for the building of the nation, the guidance of the people. Wow. Sounds different than today, right? Because, see, what happens then is the masses are protected, as it says in verse 2 there in chapter 32. The structure of good government is built on the responsibility, number one, of the safety of its people. It's in the founding documents of our country, you know, to protect life. So, we're not surprised than really to find that a man will find refuge from the wind and shelter and cover and streams of water and the, the shadow of a great rock protecting them in a righteous kingdom. And, and here's the truth of all of this, everyone. It's, this is in the Bible. If, if government limits its function to the safety of its people, its agenda is going to be full. And, and government has to return to this basic, here's basic thing. Here's the deal. People need protection. Yet with the moral foundation of righteousness and justice being blown up, can safety be assured? And Isaiah simply saying no. Now, also we need to understand here that verses 1 and 2, along with verses 3 and 4, are a picture of the reign of Christ in his kingdom. Now that doesn't mean that this can't be used now though, right? Shouldn't we always be emulating Christ and who he is? And when you move to verses 3 and 4, these verses describe the transformations that occur in the Messiah's reign in the kingdom. All who see and hear God's truth will understand and obey it. Isaiah 29 also said it, on this day the death will hear the words of out of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And this will happen because the nation will have a new heart and enter into the covenant with the Lord, as it says in Jeremiah 31. To see clearly, listen perceptively, understand thoroughly, speak plainly the word of truth. Hey, these are qualities of wise people. And what ends up happening then in all of this, is that the foolish are exposed in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 32. All of the values in a kingdom that is not found in righteousness, not ruled by justice, not guided by wisdom, are tipped upside down. See, a fool who rejects God and his teaching, as it says in verse 5 there, is called generous, and that is called bountiful. And that's true in our world today, isn't it? But when righteousness, justice, and wisdom from God rule the kingdom, that, that fake stuff is lifted. The fool will be exposed as a person who speaks foolishly, works iniquity, practices ungodliness, utters errors against God. Justice, righteousness is really pervasive and an influence upon thinking, speaking, and doing, Foolishness travels like a microbe in the bloodstream to every part of the personality. And the consequences are just evil, wicked in intent. The fool keeps the hungry unsatisfied and the thirsty unfulfilled. Do you, you see that in verse 6? The fool keeps the hungry unsatisfied and the thirsty unfulfilled. All right, I'm just going to say it. We live here in the L.A. area. We have homelessness, and just awful stuff all around us. I firmly believe verse 6 deals with this. With wicked intent, the fool, and these are the leaders, the the government leaders, the fool keeps the hungry unsatisfied, the thirsty unfulfilled. It's, It's a form of power. Proverbs 19.3, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. So the fool's evil schemes, wicked plans, the poor are destroyed, the, the needy are oppressed. Government that is run in an unrighteous way cannot have true justice and thus will be exposed. Because, see, pretending to be generous They're just motivated by self-interest and trying to get themselves reelected and continue to have power. But in the kingdom of righteousness, the generous person will be known by generous plans, generous deeds that will not need a defense. So here's what an unrighteous, ungodly nation is called today. You know what it's called? Secular, a secular nation. What does that mean? A nation run without God. And in that secular nation is really, as we've seen in our world today, in our area that we live here, in our nation, it's a society in which all the values have been flipped upside down. And it's kind of like imagining the nation as a large, like Costco, filled with all types of merchandise times 10 that you can't finish. So a secular society is like a person who sneaks into Costco in the middle of the night and changes all of the barcodes on all of the merchandise. The cheap things are now valuable and the valuable things are now cheap. And it's these weird topsy-turny values that are an indicator that righteousness no longer reigns. Justice is no longer the rule. And that's what we have today. That's what they had back then. And all of a sudden, there's this interruption, it seems, in verses 9 through 15, where he's kind of interrupting his train of thought, Isaiah, by all of a sudden appealing to the women of Judah who are charged with being uh, complacent in verse 9. And really, the perhaps the answer comes in this sweep through the nation and its people. He's spoken to kings, princes, common people, prophets, fools. So the women who represent a significant influence of the life of nation, they should be addressed as well, right? True. They're addressed right there. in Israel's challenge, rise up, hear my voice, give ear to my speech, is, is a compliment to the power they yield. His warning is that their ease is turning to trembling and their complacency is going to give way to trouble when the Lord brings judgment upon Judah. And the pleasant fields and the fruitful vine and the happy homes and the palaces and the bustling city and the forts and the towers along with the city walls are all going to be gone. And the implication is that the women of Judah took these blessings for granted, but if they arose, they could make a difference. And that is the deal, everyone. I do not understand. I do not understand why people say that Christians should just be in their churches and praising God there, and not dealing with anything in the world. That is not biblical. As we've seen there, rise up, hear my voice, give ear to my speech. We need to be the people that rise up, hold our hands out, and say, enough's enough in our culture, in our world. Enough is enough. Hear our voice. Give ear to our speech through God. The implication there is that if you rise up, you can make a difference. Now, one thing is certain, Isaiah is obviously seeing the kingdom of righteousness cannot come just by human power. And he's foreseen in verse 15, the, the Pentecost there, until so the spirit is poured on us from high on high. And it really gives a nod also to Joel 2, verse 28 through 32, not going to spend time doing all of that there, but it, as it says, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And Joel's prophecy will not be completely fulfilled until the Messiah's kingdom. But Peter, in using it in his sermon on Pentecost, found in Acts 2, there shows the Pentecost was a partial fulfillment, a taste of what was going to happen in the Lord's kingdom when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And just as God showed Isaiah that the supernatural sword of the Lord would put the Assyrians into it, retreat from the walls of Jerusalem, he also gives his prophet a perspective, gives Isaiah a perspective of the only power That can bring righteousness and justice to the nation until the Spirit, and it's capitalized there, right? The Holy Spirit is poured upon us from on high. It leaves no doubt. Supernatural power is essential to the transformation of a nation steeped in rebellion, foolishness, complacency. The church is the hope of any nation, The church is the hope. And what happens then in the outpouring of the Spirit in verses 16 through 20 is the peace of godly wisdom. The peace that God promises in the kingdom of righteousness. You see, the women of Judah and Jerusalem took their ease in the false sense of peace in their nation and their homes. But with the outpouring of the Spirit, true peace will come. Justice will be present Yes, righteousness, though, will lead the way. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness quiets and assurance, uh, quietness and assurance forever, in verse 17. And we're not going to fully understand the pervasive power and positive effect of this righteousness. Isaiah begins, once again, with a simple statement, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And the concept expands with this huge effect into every level of society, every group of the nation, lifting up some, exposing others, challenging others. But now we would see righteousness coming to its final effect. What does righteousness produce? Peace. Peace in heart, peace in the nation. God promises, my people will dwell in peaceful habitation. And man, how distant modern Israel seems from that I mean look at the what's going on there all the time how distant does it seem here I mean it's just you know everywhere you turn it just seems not around but that promise is good for us and for Israel and it's good for us even now now I've been in ministry for you know 30 years full time paid ministry been At a couple of churches in that time, and you know what? West Hills Church is far from being perfect, right, everyone? It's far from being perfect, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now, just from experience, this church, everyone, this church is peaceful. There is such a sense of peace when I come here. There is such a sense of peace. I love it. This is this is the most I've ever seen this at any church. This idea of peaceful rusting. and, and what it is is the. And like I said, we're not perfect, but you can see God working here, right? The outpouring of his spirit transforms lives, clears vision, empowers our witness, and he gives us this peace in the midst of a just a awful hail, devastating storm. In verse 19, it says there. And for all of us, then verse 20, which is this beatitude, is is this word of wisdom. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. In verse 20, like I said there, is we, we tap the resource of God's life, Christ, and by freely sending out the feet of the ox and the donkey, we show our confidence in his promise. And Isaiah paints this picture of a peaceful, richly supplied pastoral scene with water and bumper crops and no one's even bothering to chase the animals out of the fields. It's because it's just so amazing. It's really the old testament way of saying what Paul said in First Corinthians three, all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You see, with our hearts we can cherish a sense of personal possession in God and we don't need any more, even as the world around us is just crazy. The benefits of an untouchable ally are endless, aren't they? It gives us the strength to go out and tell people, stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop telling people lies. And we get to share God and the truth in Christ. And you know what? Some people are going to Listen. And they're going to want to hear that story. And they're going to be drawn to the Lord. And and we're going to be a part of that. And it's going to be awesome. I'll talk to someone all day about that, right? That peace. And at the end of the day, the most direct way into your heart is the truth that God, who humbled himself, became flesh for you. He comes into the heart. You see, the God who is all-powerful became weak for you. The God who is wise became foolish for you at the, at the cross. And everyone, we've got to stop treating him as a beautiful theory. We've got to turn to him. We need him. We need to listen to him. We need to trust Him because He has promised to save you. He has promised to save you and we know that His promises are true. Last week, we said three words. I guess I like three-word statements because I can remember them. Last week, we were saying, trust in Him. Isaiah is continuing this week with this three-word statement we need him let's pray together